There are over 250,000 unsolved murders in the United States, and that number increases by about 6,000 every year. The details of the crimes and the investigations differ, but for those family members left behind, the emotions they experience are the same. I'm Gail Eliason. This is Unfinished Investigation. Episode 4, Looking for Justice. In this episode, we'll tell you about the meeting Josh had with the private investigator, what that investigator did to help the family, and you'll learn more about Bill's efforts to find justice for his daughter. As an adult, Diana's son Josh wanted to bring attention to his mother's unsolved 1994 homicide. And in 2013, the Independence Police say they would reopen her murder investigation. But by 2016, there was no progress. Nothing new. So a friend asked private investigator Jeff Cheek to speak with Diana's family. Maybe he could help. Jeff agreed and met with Josh and Katie and Diana's dad, Bill. When Josh met with Jeff, he had some questions. The Independence Police say they had reopened his mother's investigation three years earlier. Now Josh and everyone in the family had doubts that anything was being done. I was under the impression that they were going to go back through all of the evidence, which to me meant anything that was in evidence, they were going to look back over it and retest for DNA if they had materialistic things there to test, which honestly I still don't even know what they have in evidence, but and then look back through all the files and notes and pictures and anything else that they had and try to put something together. I would think that they would re-interview people, suspects, witnesses, whatever, and to my knowledge, my dad is the only person that Independence PD has actually talked to since they said they were going to reopen it. As the weeks, months, and years went by and I would reach out to the detectives, their go-to excuse was, oh, we're waiting on lab work, which to me says DNA. What else? I mean, you're not going to send anything else to the lab unless you're getting a check for DNA. So according to them, they've been waiting on stuff from the lab for several years. After speaking with Diana's family, Jeff did want to help with the 22-year-old cold case. He could see there was some misunderstanding of police language and procedure. So the first contact was with Josh Alt. A friend of mine had introduced me to Josh to kind of get a high-level view of whether or not the cold case was active or not and whether anything was happening with the case. Josh seemed confused as to, I think there was some uh, question of some semantics, whether the case was open or not. Maybe the wording was there through the Independence Police Department who was working the case, but he didn't necessarily feel the case was actually being worked. I'll say it's kind of how it's presented. It's it's semantics. It's the a police department, any law enforcement agency can say that something is an active case or is an open case. Let's just use the word open. He was hearing from the Independence Police Department that it was reopened. In fact, 
cold cases by their nature are not even closed. They're homicides. They don't really close a homicide unless there is a ending, there is a suspect, there is a trial, etc. It can, it, it can do a number of things. Sometimes police departments can signal that it's open to the public to kind of start sparking a little movement with a suspect. They can do it for psychological reasons like that. Or sometimes, in all honesty, they can use the word open since it never closed to keep the family from coming to them and asking a ton of questions. What are you doing lately? What are you doing lately? It's reopened. We're working it. Basically... Give us our time. Whether or not it's being worked or not, it's a whole different story. And what I was getting from Josh was that, and I've heard this a lot, obviously, even in the law enforcement side, was that he heard that it was reopened, but he had not seen anything to indicate that it was actually being pursued or actively worked. It seemed like there was a great bit of competence. See, Diana's dad had a different perspective in that he was very involved with his daughter's death as far as uh, involved in the case and communicating with the police department. So he was very involved when Josh was at such a young age, he would have had no involvement. There was a great bit of confidence that he felt that he had in the police department at points and times, but by the time I talked to him, he had lost his confidence in the police department because again, he had seen no action on what he felt like it was a very actionable case. And that's kind of a common misperception. It's a, it's, a, it's a common misunderstanding that when the law enforcement signals that a case may be reopened, it doesn't mean that it's active and they're pursuing it always. And so I'd looked at other cold cases and, and worked on some other cold cases where it was the same thing. Okay, the case is reopened. So what are you doing? Most of the time, that's the case. The, the, the family will give trust to us in law enforcement. And I felt that being a law enforcement officer myself. They'll give you that trust that you're doing everything in your power. What they don't realize is that the, there's money restraints, there's time restraints. If a commander tells you to stop working on a case because there's other cases that you're going to take your attention to, if you don't have enough manpower, the family will never know that there's absolutely no work being done. If the DNA takes a lot of uh, money, for example, but there's things to do, they may not be authorized to spend those funds. The family may believe that everything is happening that could be happening, when in all actuality there could be, hey, we don't have the money to test this, we don't have the time to continue to work this case. But the family will never know. The, the police departments won't call you and say, hey, I'm just gonna letting you know that I'm taking off of this case. I gotta work on other ones. I'm gonna put you guys on the back burner for the next six months. They'll never say that. It is typical to say things like, I can't talk to you about this, but we are looking into something. It'll be very vague and ambiguous, uh, very vague statements. And then the family believes they're gonna draw whatever conclusions in their mind, whatever that means. In my opinion, from being on the law enforcement side, if you say, I'm looking into some, I'm, I'm gonna retest some DNA, then you can just tell the family, I'm, I'm gonna retest the shirt, the clothes, the something. What does that mean? It means this. It doesn't tamper with the case. It doesn't hinder the case. So what I was hearing from Josh was this very vague statement that some DNA testing was happening, but not, hey, we expect in six weeks, I'm sending this off to the lab, I'm gonna get some touch DNA, I'm looking for 
There was no specifics, and a family member really doesn't know what specific questions to ask in most cases. When he was talking to me, and I, I felt the same thing that I felt with other cases, which is, it's fine that you say that, but when you don't follow up, when you don't say, hey, it's going to take six or eight weeks, it could take a couple of months, and then you don't follow up and say, sorry, we didn't see anything on it. We did, however, do the testing, but you shut off the family for three years. No DNA testing takes three, three years to do. Diana's family had lots of questions for Jeff. And Bill had names of people for him to interview. Diana's friends, other relatives, and even some co-workers. Bill had notes from his meetings with police, who was present and what they discussed. He kept track of any possible developments in the investigation. He even wrote down every time he saw or tried to see his grandchildren, his only physical connection to his daughter. Jeff took all the information Diana's family supplied and he started his investigation into Diana's murder. If he could find anything new, maybe the Independence Police would truly reactivate Diana's investigation. He began by doing a victimology to determine if Diana was involved in any behaviors that might have contributed to her death. I wanted to see... Now that I know that this is a intentional murder, I wanted to see what a victimology report looks like. And that's just a fancy way of just saying what's going on in Diana's life at the time. Did she live a high-risk lifestyle? Was she engaged in things that put her at higher risk for something to harm her? Uh, was she into drugs? Was she into prostitution? Was she engaged in uh, all these extramarital affairs? Was she blowing a whistle on something at the time that was very, very significant. At a, you know, so I wanted to know about Diana and do a victimology report. I didn't find anything in the victimology report that indicated that she lived a high-risk lifestyle, first of all. When you're investigating crimes, and, and families may not understand this, but it's kind of like when you submit a, a resume with references at a place of employment. You may believe that all these references are going to say wonderful, polished things, but it's not the case. More often than not, when you are an investigator and you're asking questions, not everybody's gonna give you something favorable to say about your victim. That's just pretty typical. I'd say in this case, I didn't hear of any, anyone say anything other than Diana was a very devoted mother, very devoted wife, and a very, just a solid character person, a very hardworking person that didn't stray outside of working two to three jobs raising her young children and trying to be a good wife. So nothing in all of the people that I talked to indicated that she led a high-risk lifestyle, nor did she step outside of the working a, a large number of hours just to do what she could for the home and care for two little ones. I found no evidence that she was having an affair or affairs, and no evidence that uh, she was engaged in any wrongdoing at all. She worked two jobs and sold home decor, home interiors type things. Didn't seem like it was a overly exciting life. It seemed like it was a very responsible life, but no indication she engaged in anything illegal or high risk. The only threat that I knew of didn't come from high risk lifestyle on her end, but something that was involving her that was 
getting very high risk in her life that family and friends and coworkers told me about that was going on in Diana's life. One thing. After doing a victimology and getting to know Diana, Jeff agreed with the family. Diana had only one enemy, Tim's mistress. Was the Facebook page bringing in information to support that conclusion? When Jeff checked out the site, he found several problems with how the page was set up and utilized. The social media site was not being used to its fullest capacity. He explained his ideas to Josh, and Josh agreed. The original Facebook page was shut down, and Jeff created a new one. Well, I'd found that it worked with a, another cold case, but the biggest reason for that is to get people in the community. This seemed like this was something that really affected this community. And I knew that there was a vigil. And I knew that there was uh, a, quite a few people that had rallied around the family. And there was a lot of people that this victim touched. So I wanted to re-engage the community with a Facebook page. And it appeared that there was already one that had been set up. But I didn't feel like it was ran in the best interest of the families in order to get an access to people to be able to further investigate the case themselves. So mistakenly, sometimes people will set up Facebooks and then funnel it right to the police department, like a tips hotline. The fundamental problem with that, as victims know, victims' families realize uh, in cold cases, that the police don't always tell you that they're working on a tip and they don't even tell you that they got a tip, that they received a tip. So it's completely 100% trust that they're not only going to receive the tip, but that they're going to receive the tip well and follow through with the tip. So what I wanted to do was empower the family to say, we're not trying to do anything to keep it from law enforcement. We're definitely not trying to do anything to hinder the case, which to this point, there was no hindering it. It was just a non-starter, right? The police weren't really doing anything. What I wanted to do was empower the family to receive the information first, and then we had a chance to look at it, understand it, and then give it to the police department to say, now we're looking at you. What are you doing with this particular tip? It seems like a viable tip. And it was a way of holding the police department accountable for what seemed like a pattern of withholding information from the family. And the family would never get to see whether there was resolution or follow-up. That was one of the biggest problems. The second biggest problem is... I think in terms of what are you trying to do with your Facebook page? It didn't look to me like it was a rallying of the community to, to, to finally come forward with some missing pieces of the puzzle. It was kind of this update and it kind of felt to me like there was a backdooring of the family with the police. In fact, the person that set it up, just being really honest here, it just felt to me like they were more trying to impress the police and get win a junior deputy badge with the police department by going and given all this information to the police, when clearly the family saw nothing from it, no fruits from it at all. There was this withholding information from the family. So I thought, if this is private, if this is a Facebook page to help families, how dare you backdoor the family to go to the police with more information that we've got strong indication they didn't even follow up on information. This Facebook is not a police Facebook. This isn't an Independence Police Department Facebook. This is the family's Facebook. So how dare you withhold information from the family? Secondly, I don't, I don't think they got the purpose of trying to stir up the public and shake the tree a little bit and try to get more information and come forward. I think they were missing the mark. 
I would caution families to really be careful with anything that you're doing like that, to have somebody to really set out a mission and vision statement with it. If this is a cold case and you're trying to make headway with a cold case and you're trying to get information to solve it, then stick to the vision and mission that you're trying to solicit information from people. So be cautious of who you have administer it. I say turn the keys over to the family, but if someone like me, from an investigative point of view, I would try to train the family to get in this investigative mindset and to document any complaints that come in and to use those to hold the police departments accountable and say, what did you do with Jane Doe who said she was there the night of the crime? I need to understand that. I'm giving you information. I'm trusting that you're going to report back with me what you did with that. After creating a victimology and developing a Facebook page, Jeff began seeking out and interviewing everyone on Bill's list. While Jeff was doing those interviews, he assigned Diana's dad a task. Jeff asked Bill to see if he could find the crime statistics for the area surrounding Diana's home around the time of her death. And he did. Bill did a search from August 1993 to August 1994. He found there were two sexual assaults, four thefts, one robbery, and three burglaries. Most of those were in July and August, and none of them were within a five-block radius of the Alt home. None other than the murder of his daughter on that January night. According to the statistics Bill found, the Alt neighborhood did not appear to be a high-crime area. But could Diana's murder have been associated with a botched burglary like the Independence Police initially speculated to Bill and Sharon? And Jeff did not agree with that assessment. It's very early for anybody in law enforcement to be making claims like that anyway. So when, when Bill said that he was approached first, though, it was by a family member. And a family member, uh, I'm sorry, a, a family member of Tim. It was Tim's mom, I guess, that introduced him to the term, the sabotage burglary. Said that that's what the police were saying at the scene that night within an hour. And it kind of starts the investigation down a, a bad path to presuppose that this is a botched burglary. Of course, Bill rejected that idea uh, vehemently at first because of other information he had. Well, there, there's a couple of problems with this botched burglary, and, and we know this in law enforcement, and, and any law enforcement officer that's uh, listening to this would understand. First of all, burglars by their very nature, and, and, and you can do all the research you want on it, burglars by their very nature are cowards. The typical scenario for a burglary is, is to go knock on the door, act like you're selling magazines during the day. Nobody answers the door. There's no cars there. Maybe you've watched the house. Maybe you know it's a hardworking neighborhood and everybody's gone. Then you kick in the door, you get out. They're scared. I've chased them. I've caught them. I've talked to many burglars that I've chased and caught. They do not, they just want to get in and out and they want to get some items. And that typically it's for dope or something else. They're not your home invaders. So when you talk about burglary anyway, if that was a botched burglary by typical standards, if Diana would have come in this house, two kids in tow, entering the key in and opening it up and setting the two kids down, that burglar, a typical burglar that was there to try to get something, would have had plenty of time to run out the back door. And the way the house was positioned, 
would have given them awesome cover to go out the back door. In fact, Josh remembers, and I, I, I think this is well documented, that she came in and put one seven-month-old, eight-month-old car seat down in the living room, brought the four-year-old in, turned the TV on for him, then went back out to the car to get groceries or other items. If it was a burglary, they had ample time to get out. So from Bill's point of view, uh, the dad, he rejected it based on his knowledge at the time. I'm rejecting it 100% because there was nothing taken. The gun, the murder weapon, was left in a car, wasn't even taken. The car wasn't taken. Nothing of value was taken. They stayed inside there, not once when she came in, but when she went back out, a second time stayed in there and hid around the corner and assassinated her. That changes everything. So if a burglar had a chance to leave and there was two opportunities to leave, the first time when, when Diana came in and put the two kids in there and then went back out to the car and came back a second time, there was ample time for a burglar, a would-be burglar, to have left out that back door with cover. This particular person stayed in the home and allowed Diana to come back in a second time and walk to the, the kitchen before they killed her. If you remember, the night of Diana's death, the Independence Police told Bill and Sharon that Diana had not filed a harassment report. There was no report of any kind on file. But years later, two detectives told family members that yes, there was a report. They had seen it. Jeff wanted to read that report and ask Bill to see if he could get a copy from the Independence Police. That request took, I'd say, a good six weeks because uh, Detective Burris and Detective Knox, who were the new detectives assigned in 2013 when the case was reopened by the appeal of Josh, and as a result of that, why... I was told by Detective Burris that he would have to get permission from his supervisor before he could release it to me. So I asked him, I said, well, talk to your supervisor. Well, a couple of weeks passed and I wrote back to him again, asked him if he ever talked to him and he says he hadn't had a chance yet. But then finally after, I don't know, like say three or four more weeks, why he finally, when I asked him the third, fourth or fifth time, he said he talked to his boss, and he got permission to go ahead and get a copy for me, and he left it on the front desk. So I ran up there right away and got it before they changed their mind. Bill was excited to finally get a physical copy of the harassment his daughter had reported. But when Bill picked up the report, he was stunned. As a reminder, according to Diana's sister, Diana went to the Independence Police January 13, 1994, to file her complaint. She was shot 17 days later on January 30th. Police found her on the hallway floor shortly after midnight on January 31st. When I opened up the envelope and looked at the report, it was rewritten from memory by some police officer. May have been the one that Diane talked to, I don't know. But in any case, it was dated February the 2nd, 1994. And it was now, instead of being titled Harassment Report, it was 
homicide report. As Bill suggests, there are several things wrong here. The report was dated February 2, 1994, three days after Diana's murder, and the offense listed at the top of the sheet did not read harassment, it read homicide, but there's more. This is the report Bill was given. Independence, Missouri Police Department Supplemental Investigation Report, date 2294, report number 94-2154, offense, homicide, last name Alt, first name Diana. At approximately 1930 hours, 11394, I received a phone call at the information desk from Alt, who wished to report suspicious activity at her residence. I took the information from Alt, then called dispatch at 1941 hours, 11394, for report number. I was issued a report number, then informed Alt of the report number. At 1945 hours, 11394, Dispatcher McKeever called me at the information desk and informed me that the address given on East 9th Street North was not a good address in Independence and that this was a Jackson County address. At that time, I canceled the report number, then called Alt at her residence and informed her of this information and that she would need to contact the Jackson County Sheriff's Office and make her report. I then destroyed the original report I had taken by tearing it into pieces and placing the pieces in a trash can. When Detective Shockley asked me about this report, he mentioned a bloody towel and lipstick. I then recalled Alt had called to report she was contacted by phone at her residence by a female. I did not recall the name given by Alt. Alt stated the female told her that the female had made love to Alt's husband earlier that day in Alt's bed, and that Alt would find a bloody towel in her residence. The female told Alt the towel was on the bed when she made love to Alt's husband because the female was on her period at the time. The female also took lipstick or left lipstick at the residence. I do not remember the specifics of that part of the report. Then there's the reporting officer's name and signature, his serial number, badge number, and the name of the sergeant approving the report. After reading the supplemental investigation report, multiple areas are concerning. It was written from memory 20 days after Diana had filed a complaint, three days after she was shot. The offense listed was homicide, not the complaint of harassment that Diana reported. The details Diana was sure to have included were absent. There was no mention of repeated phone calls, break-ins, or threats. The report officer didn't remember the bloody towel or lipstick until reminded. He did not recall the name of the harasser Diana would have identified. And we doubt Diana stated that the female had made love to her husband. And the officer admits he did not remember specifics of Diana's original report. Did Diana go to the Independence Police, as Dory stated, or phone in her complaint, as the officer noted? Diana's family is confident she went to the police station in person. Why did the dispatcher call the report officer to say the address was not in the city of Independence? The alt address was on East 9th Street South, which has always been in Independence, well within the city limits. However, when the report officer created his report from memory, 
He wrote the address was on East 9th Street North. There is a short section of East 9th Street North in Independence, Missouri, also well within the city limits, but there is no such address as the one Diana gave on East 9th Street North in or out of Independence city limits. Was East 9th Street North the address he originally wrote in error? If, in fact, the report officer made the mistake, and called Diana to inform her that the address was not a good address in Independence. Did he verify her correct address before telling her she would need to contact the Jackson County Sheriff's Office to make a complaint? How did he know what address to write in this reconstructed version? Was there a chance that Diana had filed a report with the Jackson County Sheriff's Department? To find out, Bill went there. He wanted to know. When I checked with the Jackson County Sheriff's Department, they checked all the records and found there was no report made by Diane at that time or any time. At the time I asked for them to verify their reports, they said it wasn't necessary to pinpoint a year because they would just put the name in the file and let it search anything and everything. And anything come up, if she filed anything at all, it would pop up. And then when he came out and told me, he says they checked all the entire file. Diane had never filed anything. And if they, she needed to file a harassment report or whatever, that she needed to do so at the Independence Police because she lived in Independence. Whoever she talked to at the Independence Police Department was, was mistaken because somebody, whenever he filed a report, whoever took the report from him said, well, hey, she don't even live in the city. So he just called her up, told her she didn't live there, and she needed to file with the sheriff. Disappointingly, Diana's harassment report was of little use. Without Diana's original harassment report, how would Jeff, the private investigator acting on behalf of Diana's family, start working an unsolved murder that happened 22 years ago? Initially, my thought process is to gather known information from the family. Some of that can be opinions, and I have a different philosophy from a lot of law enforcement teachings, which would be, you know, back in the old days, you see these cop shows that say just the facts, ma'am. I just want the facts. I only want to know. Uh, and I've heard investigators shut people off with saying, I don't want to hear your opinions. I don't, I, don't, I don't really want to know what you think, what you've heard. I just want to know what you know. I do things a little bit different. I think in a cold case... You have to go there with people and say, what do you believe happened? Why do you believe that? Because the law is formed on this reasonable person theory. Even to get probable cause in most jurisdictions, it's what would a reasonable person believe, right? That's the probable cause standard is, what have I gathered? What facts or apparent facts would lead a reasonable person to believe that a crime has been committed? And that person is the one that committed it. That is this... So, so when I'm talking to people, it is, I, when I start with a cold case, I would say, tell me what you know, tell me what's fact. I want anything you've got, newspaper articles, I want medical examiner, anything that you, you've gotten over the years for me to look at that may be factual. And then I also want to know what your opinions are and who do you believe may know more information so I can talk to them. It's like a piece of a puzzle, just trying to put it together. And in this, in this case, like, 
if you're ever in a case, the other thing that I'm cautious of is I had some preconceived notions going into this. And so I really wanted to dive back to scratch and say, forget about what you've heard. Forget about what you've heard from other detectives that may have known something about this and form their own opinions. And what I really want to do is say, I'm going into this blind, acting like I didn't know anything. I just want to know about Diana. I want to know about the victim. I want to know who had information and then figure out what I need to do from there. So I'm not tainting myself and going in a bad direction, which I think happens sometimes in investigations. I wanted to just, whoever would talk to me at first, the easier ones, I knew there'd be some people probably resistant. I just wanted to talk to get whoever would talk to me at first. And if I could get Josh and Bill to help me, then I could get those people first, which is cousins, Sharon, people like that. And then where did she work? I'll get all of that from them and get that down. I knew that Tim was my ultimate interview towards the end because I was assured that he would probably not be open and honest with me. I needed to get enough information in order to have a good interview with Tom, which would be Tim's brother. I thought there was a very good chance that Tom would probably side with his brother, but I found just the opposite. And then I wanted to get to Ellen. So I had to figure out who could introduce me to who in order to get down the road and then eventually to Tim. Jeff had been working on Diana's case for several months and assembled a report of his findings. That report included everyone he spoke with, their contact information, and all the details they furnished about Diana's harassment that she had shared with them. Several of those people had never been interviewed by the Independence Police. On October 14, 2016, Jeff took that report to the office of the Jackson County, Missouri prosecutor, Jane Peters Baker. He met with one of the attorneys, Mr. Hunt. Jeff gave Mr. Hunt a verbal account of his investigation, along with a hard copy of his findings. Bill knew about the scheduled meeting. He knew what was in that report, and he was looking forward to giving the authorities everything Jeff had found. Diana's family was hopeful that this new information would get Diana's murder investigation legitimately reactivated. Jeff went to Michael Hunt, who's a prosecuting attorney for independence, and spent about an hour going over his report of where he turned over the names, addresses, rank, serial number, and everything else for the witnesses that he found, and many of which were witnesses that had contacted the police before saying they think they have some information that would be valuable. And the police department, all they did was say, well, give me your name and contact information and we'll call you if we need you. And to my understanding, nobody of, of those that Jeff found were ever contacted. Once again, family members were disappointed. No one followed up with witnesses or attempted to verify any of the information Jeff provided. Bill was not pleased. He requested a meeting with prosecuting attorney Jean Peters Baker's office. On December 9, 2016, Bill received an email. A meeting with prosecuting attorney Jean Peters Baker was scheduled for December 20, 2016. 
At that meeting, Bill and his granddaughter Candace were greeted by a room full of people. I finally had a grant to meet with Miss Baker to talk about Diane's case. So I figured that I'm not going to be meeting with her alone because seeing the detectives I um, talked to during that time, there was always another pair of ears. So I always figured Miss Baker's going to have another pair of ears. As it was, she had several pair of ears. So anyway, I took Candace with me as uh, my pair of ears. And uh, I told Candace as we walked into the meeting, I said, here's my plan. I said, I want them to talk first, lay out their schedule, and we'll lay out their plans, and we'll lay out what they're planning on doing. Then we can ask our questions. We got in there, Miss Baker stood up, and she introduced all the captains and the chiefs and all the other people. Then she turned to me and she says, there's no need of beating around the bush. We just don't have what we need. We just can't move forward. Well, that blew the wind out of my sail as well as Candace, because we thought, where do we go from here? So I just asked her, I said, what, what is it that you're looking for that you don't have? And she said, well, she said, we're looking for a witness for one. I asked Michael Hunt if he still had the report that Jeff gave him. And he said he thought he did. Uh, I asked him, I said, had you checked anything or done anything? He says, well, no. He said, we haven't done anything yet. We're, we're still deciding whether we want to or not. So basically, they do, have done nothing on it. I just know that uh, she, at the end of that meeting, Candace and I both looked at each other and knew that we was beating a dead horse. And so finally, uh, we just kind of uh, sort of kind of gave up on asking, so no, matter what, no matter what we came up with, offered as a suggestion or a question, one of the bunch shot it down right away, including Miss Baker. I told him during the meeting, I said, all I'm getting here is smoke. The meeting was anything but hopeful. Everything from Jeff's report that Bill offered as evidence, Miss Baker labeled as hearsay. She stated the suspect's alibi was solid. That detectives drove to Manhattan, Kansas and tracked down all the people supporting the suspect's alibi. Those individuals swore they had never seen the suspect before and did not know her. But at the same meeting, Ms. Baker told Bill and Candace that she knows killed Diana. And the Independence Police detectives agreed. They were not looking for anyone but What does a family do with being told the alibi is solid, but law enforcement and the prosecuting attorney know their suspect killed Diana? The family's private investigator offered to examine the Manhattan alibi more closely. Could he finally rule out their suspect as Diana's killer? Or would he find her alibi was actually inadequate to exclude her? He never got the chance. Independence Missouri police detectives refused to give the private investigator any information about the alibi. No time, no location, no names, no information relating to the circumstances involving the suspect in Manhattan, Kansas on January 30, 1994. 
what would be wrong with letting the family's private investigator look into the alibi? We at Unfinished Investigation are not legal experts. Any information we mention pertaining to legal matters is from Bill's interactions with the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office or Internet sources. When Bill met with Miss Baker, she made it clear to him she had no intention of filing charges at that time. As for Jeff's report, everything was labeled as hearsay. Ms. Baker said the suspect's alibi was solid, but she told Bill he had the right suspect in his daughter's murder. The police were not looking for anyone else other than the mistress. As for labeling and dismissing everything the private investigator brought to the prosecuting attorney's office as hearsay, that is technically true. When information does not come from the source, it is considered hearsay evidence. Hearsay evidence is not admissible in court because the defense must have the opportunity to cross-examine the person who made the original statement. However, according to the Cornell Law School, there are numerous exceptions to the hearsay rule. And in this case, the original source of information, Diana Alt, was dead. She could no longer speak for herself. Diana left her words with her family, her friends, and her co-workers. As for DNA or possible sources of DNA, that was not made clear to Bill. Having forensic documentation would be a definite game-changer by providing direct evidence connecting the suspect to the crime. But unless the Independence Police have something in evidence from which DNA could be obtained, bringing Diana's killer to trial could be based on circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence is indirect. It strongly suggests, but does not exactly prove, it requires reasoning or logical inference. Things like motive, threatening comments, or a suspect's behavior after a crime are a few examples. Legally, direct and circumstantial evidence hold equal value in determination of guilt or innocence, but circumstantial cases can be challenging. One difficulty is the CSI effect. Television crime shows use exaggerated depictions of forensic science, and that can influence the public's perception. Without strong forensic evidence, jurors tend to acquit. Scott Peterson was convicted with circumstantial evidence, but Casey Anthony and O.J. Simpson were not. Bill was discouraged after his meeting with Baker, hearing that she had no intention of charging the suspect. But at the same time, he was even more confident that he and his family were focused on the correct person. And Bill remembers something he heard on the television show Cold Justice. Kelly Siegler pointed out that if you hold one pencil in your hand, you can easily break it in half. But if you have a fist full of pencils, they will not break. It's the same for circumstantial evidence in court. One piece of circumstantial evidence is easy to challenge, but when there are many pieces of circumstantial evidence that all point to the same person, it's very difficult to disprove. Next time on Unfinished Investigation. I blame myself wholeheartedly for Diane's death. The blame, it, it falls squarely on me. 
no one else. If I hadn't met, if I hadn't been the wild child, the slow, I mean, it's me. I did it. I had the affair <laughs> with a psycho. Thanks for listening to Unfinished Investigation. For more information about Diana's case or to connect with the family's investigator, visit Diana's Facebook page, Justice for Diana, at Justice, the number four, Diana, 1994. You can comment or private message us there. I'm Gail Eliason, writer and narrator. Audio engineer is Bob Eliason. Music by Kevin McLeod. Music editing and podcast cover art by Matt DeLeon. <laughs>